Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week we join the Doctor, Victoria and Jamie as they face off against the Ice Warriors. We will be discussing the Doctor, companions, villains and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so to join the discussion you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. Now though, Paddy, I'll hand over to you for our story recap. Sweet. Episode 1. In a glacial valley, a group of technicians rush about a control room as an alarm sounds. An irate man enters and asks why the ionizer has been allowed to deteriorate. He is told that there was a pulse stoppage and one of the technicians suggests that they should evacuate the base. The man, whose name is Clent and is the leader of the base, refuses and together he and the technician, whose name is Garrett, manage to bring the ionizer back to a safe level. She suggests that they should bring in a scientist named Penley to help, but Clint says he is no longer part of their group. He then places responsibility for the ionizer solely on her, and he goes to get a report from the other ionizer bases across the world. The base's purpose is to halt a new era of glacial expansion that will cover the Earth, and their base, which is called Britannica's base, oversees the European region. Clint then asks for another technician named Arden, but Garrett informs him that he is out in the glacier running tests. He then insists that he be contacted and so he and his team can return to the safety of the base. Out in the glacial valley, Arden and his team come across something buried in the ice. They decide to go against orders so that they can excavate whatever is hidden inside. Clint rages that he cannot get through to him and Garrett informs him that the glacier is moving again. The TARDIS lands on its side on a snowdrift and its occupants struggle to get out of it. Jamie laments that they have once again landed in a frozen terrain and Victoria points out that they have landed outside some sort of structure. They take cover when two dishevelled looking men wearing animal furs emerge from inside carrying some supplies. One of them comments about the alarm but his companion says it is no concern of theirs and so they leave. After they have gone the travellers make their way inside the structure. Once inside they see that the interior is very reminiscent of a Victorian mansion. As they are marvelling at their surroundings a female technician approaches them and places a badge on each of them and that says that they have been assigned to evacuation flight 7 and that they have been designated as scavengers. She then leaves, ignoring Jamie's attempts to question her. The doctor also ignores Jamie's comments about the woman as he hears the sound of electronic machinery that he states seems to be off pitch. He leads them towards the door that it seems to be coming from, despite Victoria's objections that it could be dangerous. In the command centre, Clint manages to get through to Arden, who acts very cavalier towards Clint's anxious insistence that he return to the base now that the ionizer has almost completely degraded. Clint informs him that there will be a full inquiry into his actions, but Arden tells him about the thing that he found in the ice, which he reveals to be a man that he insists on bringing back to the base with him. Clint objects to this, but Arden cuts the signal just as the travellers enter. He only seems to register their presence when the doctor starts to follow him and comments on the readings the various machines are giving. Clint orders them to be removed, but the doctor calls out that the base will explode in a little over two and a half minutes, and he then springs into action and calls out orders to the various technicians. He successfully prevents the base from exploding, impressing Clint when the base computer confirms the doctor's statements. However, Clint suddenly starts to fall due to exhaustion and he is taken away to a vibro chair to recover. He brings the doctor and the others with him. Out in the glacier, Arden and his team are amazed to see that the figure in the ice seems to be wearing some sort of armour, which is amazing due to the fact that he predates any civilization that existed during the time it was frozen. One of the team labels the figure the Ice Warrior, and Arden tells him to retrieve a sled so that they can bring him back to the base. They are observed by the two men from earlier, with one of them saying that Clint won't be happy about this. They briefly bicker over the first man's opinion of Clint as a great manipulator and user of people before they set off again. Suddenly, a blizzard starts up and they take cover as an avalanche comes down on top of them. 
injuring the second man and pushing Arden's colleague to his death in the valley below. The first man, who is revealed to be the former scientist Penley, tends to his wounded friend, whom he calls Store, and together they make their way to safety. Meanwhile, Arden sends the other member of his team to find their lost colleague. In the base, the Doctor informs Clint that he and the others are sanctifiers who were in Tibet. This, coupled with the abilities he demonstrated in the command centre, seems to impress Clint, who says that he wants to give the Doctor a test. He is told that if they fail the test, they will be evacuated to a rehabilitation camp in Africa, which seems to alarm Victoria. He asks the Doctor the cause of the current ice age that the Earth is experiencing, and gives him 45 seconds to answer, and how they are currently dealing with it. After running through a few possibilities, he states that it is the result of decreased carbon dioxide production and that ionisation is the only way to deal with it. Clint confirms this by saying that over a century beforehand, a new artificial food source was created which made crop farming redundant. This led to the drop in carbon dioxide and the implementation of ionisation, a process that focuses the sun's rays like a magnifying glass onto a targeted area. However, it is not 100% accurate and if not properly maintained, it can be devastating. Clint then asks the Doctor to take Pendy's place, which he agrees to do so, but he is sceptical of their over-reliance on computers. Suddenly, Arden appears with his specimen, and the Doctor confirms Arden's earlier theory that the figure is from an unknown civilization. Arden and Clint then leave for a staff meeting, leaving the travellers with the specimen. They watch as the ice begins to melt as a result of an electrical charge that Arden set up on it. However, the Doctor notices an electrical connection on the figure, and he rushes off to inform Clint and Arden. After he leaves, Jamie and Victoria discuss the clothing worn by the female staff in the base, with Victoria not being impressed by it and shooting down Jamie's query as to whether she would wear it or not. While they are talking, the figure on the ice begins to wake up. Episode 2 The ice warrior comes to life and advances on Jamie and Victoria. It is at least 7 foot tall and appears to be a reptilian underneath its thick scaled armour. Jamie tries to fend off the creature but he is knocked unconscious by a clubbing blow and it then turns its attention to Victoria. In his office, Clint is discussing the Doctor with Garrett and Arden and says that he will ask the computer for its assessment before making the final decision on what to do with him. The computer states that it needs more data for a comprehensive answer, but indicates that from what it has seen so far, the Doctor is highly intelligent, but could be a volatile factor in certain situations. The Doctor then rushes into the room and announces that the electrical connections he noticed on the ice wire were actually in its helmet, saying that it is actually a helmet of a highly advanced spacesuit. He then says that if his theory about the warrior is correct, then they could be in great danger. He explains that the warrior most likely arrived on Earth in a spaceship, and together they all realise that if accidentally hit the ship with the ionizer, then it could destroy the, its atomic propulsion system and thereby irradiate the whole planet. Clint says he will need to speak to the World Council before making a decision, but before an argument can break out, Jamie arrives and informs the group what happened. They go back to the room and Clint raises an alert throughout the base to capture the creature. Jamie asks him to extend the search to outside the base, but Clint says he can't afford to spare them in. Jamie offers the help, and again Clint goes to the computer before making a decision. Elsewhere, the Ice Warrior introduces himself as Varga and says he is from the Red Planet, meaning Mars. He then threatens Victoria with a gun and demands to know how long he was buried in the ice. She says that it has been several thousand years and asks him if there are others like him. Varga confirms that there was, and says that they, along with their ship, are buried at the foot of the glacier. He says that he intends to release them and asks Victoria how he was brought back to life. She tells him about the equipment that Arden used and asks why he won't ask the base for help. Varga says that he intends to negotiate from a position of strength, and he will then make a final decision on whether or not to return to Mars or conquer Earth. Victoria tries her best to explain how the machine works, and Varga forces her to bring him back to the room so he can recover the equipment. 
He again threatens her with his weapon, which he says is a sonic gun capable of bursting internal organs of anyone he shoots at. In his office, the computer states that the ionization process should continue, but that the ship needs to be found to see if it has any viable fissionable materials. It suggests that Arden should be sent to locate the ship, and Jamie offers to go with him to protect him. He indicates that his main focus is on finding Victoria, but Clint says it is more important to find the ship. The duo then depart, but between the harsh weather and interference of their scanning equipment, they are unable to get a lead on Victoria or Varga. Arden reports back to Clint, who admonishes him for not following through on his official task of finding the ship. Arden says that he needs more equipment to boost his scanner so that they can find the exact location of the ship, and so Clint orders them to return to the base. Jamie comments on his callous nature, and Arden says that Clint is more of an administrator than a scientist. At their own hideout, Pendley is tending to the injured store, who is proving to be a poor patient. Their hideout is actually an abandoned plant museum, which they are using to grow fruit and veg. Despite all his bluster, Store is too poorly to do anything, and so Penley resolves to sneak into the base to find some medical supplies to help him. Before he passes out from the pain, Store voices his fear that Penley will actually turn him in to be sent to the African rehabilitation camps. Penley sneaks back into the base and he is spotted by Victoria, who is leading Varga down the corridor. He ducks into a room and is nearly spotted by Varga before Victoria distracts him by seeing the equipment is further down the corridor. Penley shares a look of acknowledgement with Victoria before she is pushed onwards by Varga, allowing Penley to re-enter the hallway after they have gone. In the command centre, the Doctor and Garrett are looking at the readouts from the various computers when they are approached by Clint. The Doctor asks why they don't have a specialist on hand, but Clint says that they don't need one, and the Doctor shouldn't raise those types of questions. The Doctor reminds him that he is only volunteering his assistance, and this thinly veiled threat makes Clint reveal the truth of the scenario. Due to his exceptional work record, he was given the administrative position at Britannicus Base but his demanding nature alienated many of the scientists, including Penley, who was the expert on deionization process. His pride prevents him from making amends with Penley, and he puts his full trust in the main computer. He returns to the room where Varga was taken, and there he finds the ice wire leading Victoria out of the room and carrying the electrical equipment. Varga strikes him down and then leads Victoria away. Penley enters the room, and seeing that Clint is still alive, goes to administer some smelling salts to him. The doctor enters and asks Penley who did it and asks why he didn't try and intervene when he saw Victoria being held captive. Penley says that he couldn't risk getting hurt as Storr's life is at stake. The doctor tries to convince him to return to help, but Penley turns him down and then leaves. The others enter the room moments later and Clint reveals that Varga took the equipment, causing Arden to speculate that there may be other ice warriors in the glacier. Jamie says that they should pursue him to rescue Victoria, but the doctor says that that is what Varga would expect them to do, and so they should wait until morning. Clint protests, saying that they must still fulfil their mission, but Arden also refuses, citing that going out at night is too dangerous. Penley returns to the hideout and gives Storr the medicine. He then says that he is going to investigate the glacier, as his curiosity has been piqued by the events going on. He also admits that he is tempted by the Doctor's offer to return to the base. Meanwhile, Vargas located the rest of his crew, and he begins to use his sonic gun to blast away at the outer layers of ice. He eventually manages to release his comrades and sets about reviving them. Episode 3 Varga manages to successfully revive his remaining crew members, Zondal, Turok, Rintan and Isper, but he is completely unaware that they are being observed by Penley. Back in the base, Jamie and Arden have returned and the Doctor tells his young companion to keep an eye on Arden in order to prevent his scientific curiosity putting them in danger. Arden, however, seems to fully acknowledge his culpability in recent events. Clint insists that they focus on finding the ship and not put themselves at risk by searching for Victoria and he shouts down Jamie when he raises an objection. Then they leave, with Clint trying to assuage Arden's guilty conscience. After they go, Clint tells the Doctor that it is time for him to get to work, and he insists on Garrett overseeing his work. 
The doctor reminds him again that he is not a member of the staff and Clint's regulations don't apply to him. Clint comments on the similar attitudes between the doctor and Penley and accidentally says that Penley suffered a breakdown, contradicting his earlier claims. Penley returns to the hideout and tells a reawakened Storr about what he saw, but his claims are met with scepticism. Storr says that he won't take part in Penley's investigations, and Penley comments that Storr is well enough to look after himself thanks to the medicine he was given. The two get into an argument over Storr's resentment of scientific treatment methods, but stop when they hear someone outside. Storr goes into hiding, and Penley greets the new arrival, who turns out to be Garrett. She begs him to return to help with the ionizer, but she also reveals that it would help Clint save face in front of the World Council. He mocks Clint's bruised ego and asks instead about Varga, but Garrett ignores the question and instead says that a man like him shouldn't be wasting his life as a scavenger. He again refuses to come back, citing his distaste for humanity's over-reliance on computers and people like Clint's firm belief in them. He says that no matter what he could do to try and fix the status quo, the Clint's of the world would always come out on top. Left with no other choice, Garrett draws a tranquilizer gun on him and insists that he return with her. However, Storr disarms her and he tries to kill her to prevent her from revealing their location, but he is stopped by Penley. Before she goes, Garrett tries to use the threat of the Ice Warriors as a reason to return to the base, but again the answer is no. Penley tells her to look at his notes in his old office in case the Doctor runs into trouble. Back at the glacier, Varga tells Zondel to begin excavating the ship, but only just enough to act as a trap for people. He then tells Victoria that she will be used as bait for the others. She tries to tell him that her friends could help them, but she ignores her and watches as the excavation process begins. In the base, the Doctor is working on various formulas to try and fix the ionizer, and Clint tries to get him to use the base's computer to assist in his work, but to no avail. Garth returns with Penley's notes, and the Doctor realises that they have the solution to overcome something called the Omega Factor. However, he gets offended when Clint orders Garth to run the Doctor's calculations through the computer, but once Clint leaves, he brings up the subject of Penley's departure. He is curious to see that that not everyone shares Clint's views on him, but before he can press the matter, Arden messages in saying that they have located the Ice Warrior ship. The Doctor tells them to be careful, but Clint orders Arden to carry out his survey. The duo approach the door of the ship, which is at the back of the excavated cave, but they are suddenly shot by Varga and Zondal using their sonic guns. Victoria cries out and rushes to Jamie's body, but finds him unresponsive and begins to weep. She is then taken away by the two Ice Warriors back into the ship and they discuss the current situation. Varga orders Victoria to be kept alive as bait, and if more people show up to look for her, then they will be destroyed, but if no one shows up for her, then they will be free to do as they wish. Varga then tells Zandel to begin repairing the ship's propulsion system. After they go outside, Penley arrives and goes to check on the bodies. In the base, Clint says that they should have the results for the computer's calculation shortly, but the Doctor ignores that, commenting on the fact that they haven't heard from Arden. Clint chalks it up to Arden's scientific curiosity, but agrees to call him when the Doctor tries to use the communications equipment. They grow more and more concerned when their messages aren't responded to. Up on the mountain, Penley ignores their messages and covers Arden's body, but stops when he sees that Jamie is alive, and so he takes him back to the hideout. The Doctor says that he will never forgive himself if anything happened to Jamie, but Clint seems to be more concerned about the loss of data from Arden's survey than the man himself. The Doctor admonishes him for this, but Clint says that he doesn't trust the Doctor's judgement. Before they get into an argument, Garrett arrives and says the computer has verified the Doctor's calculations. Clint is overjoyed at this and seems to ignore the Doctor's comments about the potential loss of Victoria and Jamie, seemingly lost in the happiness as to what this breakthrough could mean for his career. The Doctor then reminds him that they don't know what Arden was able to find out about the Ice Warrior ship and the potential danger it holds. In the hideout, Storr gives out the penalty for bringing Jamie back, but he stops when Jamie wakes up. Penny informs him of Arden's death and Storr asks if they came to find Victoria. 
Jimmy asks what they know of her and tries to get up but falls back in pain from his injuries. He begs them to help rescue her before he passes out again. Back at the ship, Victoria manages to sneak out and goes to where the bodies were but finds Jamie's missing. She then notices Arden's communications device and tries to use it to call the base. Unfortunately, she is being watched by Varga and Zondal on the ship's scanners and they decide that she must be stopped. Victoria manages to get through to the base and she informs them of what happened to Jamie and Arden. Clint tries to get her to tell them about the ship, but she is too upset to focus on anything other than Jamie and Arden. Because of this, she doesn't notice one of the ship's weapons being aimed at her head. Episode 4 At the last moment, Varga changes his mind, as Victoria is still valuable as bait. Outside, Victoria is trying to relay the information she has gathered about the Ice Warriors, but Clint instead wants to know what she has found out about the ship. The Doctor tries to get her to describe what she saw, as she can't tell exactly what type of engines they are. Varga then orders Turok to bring her back inside as she has told the base enough and he wants to know why they are so curious about the ship's engines. Victoria says she hears someone coming and the doctor tells her to run back towards the base and communicate with them again once she is in the clear. However, she ends up running further into the glacier to avoid Turok. He chases her through the tunnels and catches her when she attempts to retrieve the communicator that she dropped. As they struggle, a section of the glacier collapses down on top of them. In the base, the doctor uses a machine called an automatic chemical dispenser to produce a vial of ammonium sulfide. He says that without Jamie or Victoria to tell them about the ship's propulsion systems, their best chance is to take on the ice warriors themselves. Due to their Martian biology, the ammonium sulfide would act as a toxic gas that would allow the doctor to investigate the ship safely. Clint refuses to let him go, but the doctor points out that without knowing about the propulsion system, they won't be able to use the ionizer safely. He tells them that he intends to deliberately allow himself to get captured and will communicate with them once he has found out what he needs. In the hideout, Pendy and Storr tend to Jamie who wakes up in confusion and demands to be let free. Jamie and Storr take a liking to each other due to their Scottish heritage and their mutual misunderstanding when Storr refers to him as a loyalist. He tries to help Jamie up only to discover that the young man has lost the use of his legs. Jamie again passes out from the pain and the shock and Storr decides that the only way to help him is to seek assistance from the Ice Warriors. Penley tries to dissuade him from his course of action, but Storr insists that they are only acting aggressively out of self-defence. At the ship, Zondal informs Varga that Turok has not returned yet with Victoria, and Varga insists that she must be returned so that they can lure someone up to the base to tell them what equipment they are using so they can possibly use it to refuel their ship. Back in the glacier, Victoria is half-submerged under blocks of ice and the corpse of Turok. She calls for help, but it only succeeds in a mini-avalanche further down the glacier. Storr hears Victoria's cries and goes to investigate. Penley follows after but is blocked off by another of the mini avalanches. He takes another route and encounters the doctor at the ship's entrance and asks him if he saw Storr. He then tells the doctor about Jamie and takes him to him. Meanwhile, Storr locates Victoria and helps her over the ice. He tells her about Jamie and takes her away from the area as more mini avalanches start to come down near them. He brings her back to the ship, narrowly missing Varga and the others. They were testing the exterior weapons in preparation for the assault on the base and went into hiding when they heard voices approaching. Storr tries to convince Victoria that he will be able to deal with the Ice Warriors due to his perception that they hate the scientists of the base like he does. The Ice Warriors emerge from hiding and Varga demands to know where Turok is. She tells him that he is dead and Varga orders her to be brought inside. Storr offers to help the Ice Warriors destroy the base but when they realise that he is of no value to them, Varga and Zandal will kill him before going back inside the ship. The Doctor greets Jamie and reassures him that he will be able to walk again but it will take time due to the lingering effects of the weapon used on him. The Doctor and Penley then discuss the best way to get him back to the base for treatment when a mini avalanche cascades through the roof. The Doctor says that he needs to go to the ship and asks Penley to bring Jamie back to the base, who is reluctant to do so as it would lead to a meeting with Clint. 
Jamie begs him not to go, but the doctor says that he will be all right. In the base, Clinton Garrett watches the glacier moves closer to the base, which is the cause of the mini avalanches. Garrett presses him to make a decision on what to do, but he says that he is relying solely on the doctor's plan to succeed. Just then, the doctor messages that he is going inside the ship. He arrives and demands to be let in. Varga demands to know who he is, but the doctor refuses to answer unless addressed properly. Varga then says that the doctor is actually standing in the ship's airlock, and that if he doesn't answer, he will lower all the air pressure inside the room, which will result in the doctor exploding. The doctor starts to protest, but Varga begins to lower the pressure. Episode 5 The doctor relents and identifies himself as a scientist from the base. Varga comments that because of his scruffy fur coat, he looks more like a scavenger and is of no use to them. The doctor says that if he dies, then so too do their chances of escape. This convinces the ice warriors, and they admit him inside the ship, telling him that he is their prisoner. However, the ship shakes due to the glacier moving, and the doctor points out that they are the prisoners, and they will need to follow his conditions. In an effort to keep the upper hand, Varga summons Victoria and says that with two prisoners, the base will not dare move against them. The doctor says that the ionizer poses no threat to them and could help allow them to go home. Victoria arrives and asks the doctor about Jamie, who replies that he is fine. Varga then asks why the ionizer hasn't been used to free them before and threatens the doctor with his sonic weapon to get an answer. The doctor tells them that they couldn't risk using it in case it reacted with the ship's propulsion system. However, Zondel points out that without the fear of the engines, the base would be free to use the ionizer on them causing water from the melted ice to flood the ship and leave the ice wires at the mercy of the humans. They accuse the Doctor of being a spy and demand that he hand over any communication device that he has. He's been discreetly using it the whole time to allow Clint and Garth to listen into the conversation and Varg insinuates that using the ionizer on the ship would not result in an explosion. Out in the glacier, Penny is carrying Jamie back to the base on a modified sled. They take a pause to rest and Penny says that they won't be stopped for long due to the dangerous wildlife in the area. Just at that moment, a bear wanders into the clearing at the path ahead of them. Penny takes a tranquilizer gun that he took from Harden and uses it to stop the approaching beast, but it doesn't seem to phase it. He tries to help Jamie out of the sled, but he is forced to use the gun again as the bear rears up on them. Back at the base, Garrett and Clint get into a debate as to whether or not they should follow the doctor's instructions to use the ionizer. The computer does not have enough information to form an objective answer and instead defaults to its standard programming to combat the glacial encroachment. Garrett decides to ring the World Council to seek their advice. Clint, however, stops her and insists that they feed as much information as possible to the computer and hope it will tell them something favourable. The computer informs them to prepare the ionizer, but to call the World Council for further advice on how to proceed. Clint is satisfied with the computer's answer, despite the fact that Garrett predicted it earlier, and he addresses the command centre in order to show confidence. Garrett realises that the computer's logical programming would prevent it from choosing a potential self-destructive option. She suggests that they should evacuate, but Clint turns down the idea, stating that he would not be able to face the potential derision of the World Council. He then orders the staff to carry on with their normal duty, but his positive demeanour does not get the reaction that he was hoping for. Back in the glacier, the bear falls unconscious to the ground, and Penny and Jamie hastily leave the area. In the ship, the ice warriors show the doctor the propulsion system, and he knows that it is an ion reactor, and wouldn't necessarily have an adverse reaction to being hit by the ionizer. However, they refuse the Doctor's offer of cooperation, and he then realises that they require fuel to launch the ship. He again plays for time by refusing to tell them what type of fuel the base has, but he is forced to relent when Zandal threatens to kill Victoria, despite her pleas that the Doctor not give in to their demands. The Ice Warriors then prepare to launch an attack on the base. In the base, Clint is informed of the arrival of Pendy and Jamie, and he orders them to be brought in, despite his reluctance to deal with Pendy again. He tells Garrett that because Penley gave up on his responsibilities, that he no longer considers him to be an equal. Penley and Jamie are brought in, and Penley begs that they give Jamie medical treatment. 
Clint orders them to be taken to the medical bay, but Jamie refuses, saying that they need to rescue the doctor in Victoria. Clint says that there is nothing that can be done as they lost contact with the doctor, but Pendley calls him out for his pessimistic and callous attitude. He then points out Clint's blind faith in the computer could lead them to their doom, despite the potential threat of the propulsion system, and says that they should use the ionizer. The two men get into an argument, and Jamie grabs Clint in an effort to convince him to help rescue his friends, and Clint orders them to be tranquilised, and Gart has them taken away under guard to the medical bay. Gart then joins Clint in voicing her support for the computer. On the ship, Zondel aims the ship's weapons and prepares to fire on the base. The doctor then signals Victoria to start crying as a distraction. Varga contacts Zondel from near the base, where he and the other two ice warriors, Rintan and Isper, are waiting to storm in. As they are talking, Victoria cries out that water is seeping into the ship in an effort to allow the doctor to use the ammonium sulphide. However, he has trouble opening the container and Zondel tries to take it from him. The container breaks in the scuffle and all three of them start to choke, with Zondel being affected the worst. Varga orders him to fire on the base and the doctor struggles to keep his hand from the trigger. Episode 6 The doctor is unsuccessful and Zondel fires a warning shot into the base before passing out. Varga then communicates with those inside and demands that they surrender or he'll fire again. Clint offers to negotiate a mutually beneficial deal with him and allows Varga to enter unharmed. Before he arrives, Gart suggests that they bluff Varga by saying that they will fire the ionizer on the ship as he won't know about the computer's earlier decision. One of the guards asks why they don't just go ahead and fire on the ship anyway and begins to rant against Clint and Gart's belief in the computer. He says that they would be better off in with either Penley or the Doctor in charge, and he goes to destroy the computer, but he is tranquilised by Garrett. Varga and the other ice warriors enter the base a short while later, and Clint welcomes them in. Varga demands that they follow his orders, and he shows them he is serious by killing the newly awakened guard. He demands that they give over the fuel the Doctor mentioned, but Clint says they do not have any of that type of fuel at all. He says that he doesn't believe them, and he demands to be taken to the reactor controls so that he can see for himself. Clint tries to get him to see reason as tampering with the ionizer's reactor could destroy the base and everything around it. Varga is impressed with the destructive capabilities of the ionizer and again threatens Garth with his weapon to shut it down. Clint tries to save her by saying that she is the only person capable of doing what he wants and it would be a mistake to kill her. Varga then instead threatens to kill Clint, not caring for his rank, and instead deems him to be expendable. Garth agrees to do as he asks in order to save Clint. Meanwhile, back on the ship, the Doctor and Victoria manage to exit the ship and they begin to examine the exterior sonic cannon. The Doctor explains that he can manipulate the frequencies emitted from the cannon to be less destructive to the base itself and more targeted towards the Ice Warriors themselves. He tells Victoria that he can attune the sonic cannon so that it will be more harmful to the Ice Warriors due to the large concentration of water in their bodies and the fact that their armour could intensify the sonic beam as well due to its material. He does highlight, however, that there is a risk to the base personnel as well, including Jamie. Jamie and Penley are lying on gurneys in the medical bay. Penley wakes up and makes his way to the command centre, where Garrett has just powered down the ionizer, and Varga demands that Clint power down the reactor. Penley realises that the ice warriors can withstand the sub-zero temperatures out in the glacier, and so he accesses the internal temperature controls and increases the heat throughout the base. The ice warriors start to become affected by the heat, and just then the doctor fires the sonic cannon at the base. The effect is instantaneous, but it affects the humans as well as the ice warriors. The Doctor threatens to fire again unless Varga pulls out, but he receives no answer and so he sabotages the gun before he and Victoria make their way back to the base. Varga and the others recover from the sonic assault and rush back to the ship to enact revenge, missing the Doctor and Victoria on their way up the glacier. They arrive to find Zondel slowly waking up and the cannon destroyed. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Victoria arrive back at the base and check up on everyone. 
Victoria says Jamie is safe, but still unconscious, and so the doctor sends her back to the TARDIS for safety. He then revives Penley with some smelling salts. They then begin to revive the others, and the doctor urges Garrett to reconnect the computer, which he only does once Clint echoes the command. The doctor reveals the nature of the ship's propulsion systems, and both he and Penley urge Clint to use the ionizer despite the risk. Clint and Garrett refuse to counteract the computer's instructions, and the doctor explains to a newly arrived Jamie the logic problem the computer finds itself in due to its self-preservation directive. Penley says that they must override the computer. Clint refuses, saying that they must work in accordance with the World Council's plan of coherence with the other ionizer bases, but Penley points out that none of the other bases face the dual problem of the ice warriors or glacial encroachment. Clint asks the computer for a solution, but it short circuits, leaving him dejected, and so Penley makes the decision to use the ionizer at full power. As they use it, Clint is adamant that they are wrong. On the ship, Zondel announces that due to the ship being embedded in the glacier, their instruments gave a false reading of the fuel reserves, and they have enough to achieve flight. However, the ship is racked with explosions as Varga realises too late that the fuel reading is from the ionizer interacting with the ship's reactor, which results in the ship being destroyed. Back at the base, the staff are relieved that the results of the explosion were minimal. Clint admits his admiration and respect for Penley, and the two begin to repair their fractured relationship. Penley asks if Clint will include the Doctor and the others in his report for the Council, but they discover that they have disappeared. Outside, the TARDIS, which has righted itself again due to the glacier quakes, dematerialises. End of the story. So once again, we shall leave the Arctic wasteland and we shall go to Trisha's Trivia Spot. So what have you got for this week? Cool. So this story, the air date was the 11th of November to the 16th of December in 1967. Very apt time of year. (laughs) Indeed. The writer for the story is Brian Hales. We have discussed Brian before. He also wrote The Celestial Toymaker and The Smugglers. And we will see his work again in The Seeds of Death, The Curse of Peladon and The Monster of Peladon. And there's a theme there. There's a very subtle theme. There is a theme. There's a theme going through there. Mm. I actually can't wait till we get to the Paladon stories. Yeah, like I, like even like even like to like Seeds of Death as well, because like, I I remember liking that at the time I first watched it. But the Paladon ones are great. It's just there's something in the Paladon ones that I really like. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, the director for the story is Derek Martinus. Again, we have discussed Derek before. He previously directed Galaxy Four. Mission to the Unknown, The Tenth Planet, and The Evil of the Daleks. We do have one more story left to go with Derek, which is going to be Spearhead from Space, which we won't get to for a little while, but we will be coming back to him again. And this is actually a a nice crossover of both a writer and a director whose work that we actually have quite enjoyed. Yeah, like, uh, Celestial Toymaker, good conceptually, from a writing perspective, good concept. Mm -hmm. Smugglers was good. Yeah. Uh, Galaxy 4, not so much, but the rest of Derek's rundown is great. (laughs) (laughs) Currently, episodes 2 and 3 of this story are missing from the BBC archives. Thankfully, however, they have been animated and so are available on the DVD release for the story. Unlike some of the previous stories that we've discussed that have animated episodes, this is only in black and white. There's no colour option because this was one of the like i think like maybe the first four or five stories that they they did yeah this was like this came out in 2013 so yeah this is one of the first ones that they did Mm. for the sequence where we have the bear that uh 
attacks Penley and Jamie. That wasn't stock footage. They actually got a bear. Well, a bear cop. It was like a baby bear. Uh, yeah. At a cost of £70, they hired a bear for the day and shot some film inserts that they could then use in the episode. That kind of reminds me of like, uh, there's an episode of the old Incredible Hulk TV series where like Hulk fights a bear. But they said like that it was still only a baby because if it was an actual fully grown bear, it probably would have killed Lou Ferrigno. <laughs> <laughs> so keen fashion viewers may notice that Miss Garrett's costume changes. So at one point in the story, she goes to find Penley and then she comes back and she goes through a costume change, you know, which you can imagine day into day or, you know, she took a break or whatever. But then... Between episodes five and six, her outfit changes back to the same one that she had at the beginning of episode one. And there doesn't seem to be any particular reason why, because she hasn't left the base or gone anywhere since then. Whereas, like, the first time she'd gone to see Penley, so that could kind of explain where her outfit was different. (laughs) The theories around nuclear winter and a new ice age, that was the whole idea behind this story. And this is something that we've been hearing a lot over the years you know this isn't a new concept mm-hmm. um the difference between it is that like you know at the time in the 60s this was a real life debate that was going on so like it's a debate that we have now in 2021 it was also a debate that scientists were having back in the 1960s around like global warming and all that kind of thing but I think when it was, this was at the same time around the Cold War as well. So you did have, I suppose, the threat of an actual n- proper nuclear war as opposed to just global warming. Yeah, so you had a nuclear winter and then you had like a new ice age. Like those two things were hot topics at the time. Yeah. So you may notice that at the end of episode six, Victoria just kind of disappears. <laughs> the doctor just sends her back to the TARDIS and we don't actually see her go we don't see her check on jamie uh the reason for that was that um deborah watling couldn't stay for the complete recording of that episode she had to leave so they just wrote in that the doctor told her off screen to go back to the tardis because they're like shit she's not here i just tell her to go back to the tardis she'll be fine (laughs) so the ice warriors Mm -hmm. it was Derek martinus who insisted that every ice warrior actor should be over six feet They are very fucking tall. (laughs) And apparently, some of the people who turned up to audition were very dubious gentlemen with prison records. Just because of the nature of the story, and now you said like that they have had to be over a certain height. All I have now is my head in my head is the thing from South Park. It was like it was at this time I realized that this was a Girl Scout was over three hundred foot tall and was a creature from the Paleozoic era. So in Brian's original vision, the Ice Warriors were meant to be human-like with a medieval-style space armor, right? Which is kind of where, you know, the Viking-esque mention came from. Yeah. It was the costume designer, Martin Bow, who went with a sort of more reptilian appearance, and then he kind of merged the two with the sort of Viking-ish style helmet with the more reptilian body. Like, I would kind of describe it as like, they look a bit like turtles that are standing straight up. 
Yeah. I just when you were saying like you know like the like medieval style space armor. Do you remember the guardians on the the frozen mountain in Keys of Marinus? That's what I'm kind of imagining for that. Mm. Yeah. So Bernard Breslau, who's one of our ice warriors, he was like, taken aback upon seeing his costume. So I listened to his bit on the audio commentary and he had expected to go into, you know, the costume department and to talk about his costume. No, no, he was sent to a different company that make fiberglass hulls for ships. <laughs> and they took this, as opposed to taking like his measurements with a measuring tape, they took a calipers to get his dimensions <laughs> because the body piece was fiberglass. Yeah. And the legs and arms were rubber. So he said it was quite weird to have to go and like get measured for a fiberglass thing. He's he's a big lad as well, like so. Oh yeah, he's like be... six foot four, six foot five or something. Hmm. Um, he was also expected to be a bit more Viking-like, perhaps based on Brian's original script. Story notes. Mm-hmm. And he thought that he would be recognizable. He thought he'd be able to see his face. Oh, that's it. Like, there's absolutely no way in hell you could tell that this is Bernard Breslau because not only is like, so the Viking style helmet is like, it's a conical helmet, which has like two large eye sections in it. But those eye sections have like tinted plexiglass. Yeah. So you can't even see the person's eyes. All you can see is the mouth. Yeah. Um. So not quite what people were expecting. I'm sure we'll mm. discuss their design more when we get to our discussion later on. Yeah. Derek Martinez has named this as his favourite story, mainly because he felt the cast was so strong. And again, I'm sure we'll get to our feelings on the cast and their performances when we get to our discussion point. Yeah. So speaking of the cast, as Penley, we have Peter Salas. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Peter. He was actually set to appear in the fifth Doctor story, Enlightenment. But there was industrial action that delayed filming and by the time it actually picked up again he was busy with other projects and he couldn't do the episode. He's probably most well known for playing Norman Clegg in every single episode of Last of the Summer Wine. Cleggy. <laughs> He's also the voice for Wallace in the animated Wallace and Gromit series. That I didn't know. I didn't know they were the same person. Yeah, like that. That was the. I remember because like I grew up watching Last of the Summer Wine. Like my mom loved it, and so therefore I got to see it. And then I finally started watching Wallace and Gromit. I was like, that voice sounds very, very familiar. And then the internet came around, and I found out that they're the same person. <laughs> Peter was awarded an OBE in Order of the British Empire in two thousand seven as part of the birthday honors for services to drama. Hmm. Sadly, he passed away back in two thousand seventeen. Clint is played by another Peter, this time Peter Barkworth. Again, only Doctor Who acting credit for Peter. His non-Who acting credits include The Avengers, Emergency Ward 10, No Hiding Place, Patton, Where Eagles Dare, yeah. Winston Churchill, The Wilderness Years, The Return of Sherlock Holmes, and Heartbeat. And just for you, I did look up who he played in Where Eagles Dare, in case you couldn't pick him out yourself. No, you probably I, know. Oh, I, I, I know him. He's actually in... One of the, like, for the war movies that came out then, it's actually an amazing sequence. It's a fight between three guys on top of a cable car between a mountain and a ski village. So, like, you know those old-style tram cable cars that would, like, go up Mm. a a diagonal link line? Yeah, 
they fight on top of that and he's involved in that and it's a really like nerve-wracking sequence mm. his character's name is Berkeley. yes <laughs> I can stop gushing over now where he goes there so it's grand <laughs> Peter passed away back in 2006 Miss Garrett is played by Wendy Gifford this is again her only Doctor Who acting credit her non-Who credits include The Plane Makers Out of the Unknown Adam Adamant Lives Crown Court Upstairs Downstairs Casualty and something I haven't heard mentioned in a long time, chuckle vision. <laughs> I as you were going down the the list of her credits there, I was like, "What do you mean there's only only acting credit? Look, there's the oh wait, no, that's the plane makers. Oh wait, oh wait, that's out of the unknown and not the mit makers and mission to the unknown." <laughs> A get out of my notes and B <laughs> get out of my notes. <laughs> but yeah no. Uh, no chuckle vision something i haven't heard yeah. in donkey's ears at this point yeah because i think you got annoyed at me going to me to you to me to you <laughs> it was irritating as a child it's irritating as an adult <laughs> it's like people who like anytime they're doing anything with furniture just shout pivot from fucking friends yeah. that got old really fucking quickly I think I kind of leaned more towards the Bernard Cribbins right said Fred mentality as whatever I have to do heavy lifting. Well, that's only because your daughter loves that song. Yeah, plus it's Bernard Cribbins. Yeah. Varga is played by the previously mentioned Bernard Breslau. Again, only Doctor Who acting appearance for Bernard, though he was considered for the role of Kondo in The Brain of Morbius, which given his height, I can totally see why he was considered Mm. for that role. He's probably best known for his appearance in the Carry On series. He was in 18 Carry On titles. That's insane. I was going to list them. So I had originally put in like a colon and then like an indented bullet point. And I was planning on yeah. listing them out. And then I started counting them on IMDb and I was like, fuck this. There's so <laughs> many of them. There's 18. Also, again, purely for your benefit, he was also in Crawl. Yes, he actually was. And... Interesting fact. Do you remember when we talked about the arc? We talked about the the costume designer for mm. the uh, monoids. He played the Cyclops that the, that same uh, costume designer created the look for. Mm. Yeah. Right. So he, again, like that eye in the center of the head type thing. And he's actually one of my favorite characters in Krull. And also, if I'm thinking it's right, he's in a... He, just because we're talking about the fact that he's like meant to be portraying like a large individual I think he's in a movie called Hawk the Slayer where he plays like the giant he just happens to be like half a foot taller than everyone else that's what makes uh, him I love how you say a large individual tall Paddy the word you're looking for is yeah, tall. tall well like I, I was like, no gigantic isn't the right word because like I'm fucking six foot four and I'm not like I would consider him to be bigger than me you know you are very tall though yeah you make me feel I could be a nice warrior you could you could uh, Bernard passed away in 1993. Lastly, as Zondal, we have Roger Jones. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Roger. And interestingly, so on the DVD commentary, uh, apparently there was a little bit of an investigation done into Roger um, because there's very little known about him. And, you know, I, I saw this when I was, you know, looking up the trivia and stuff. There's very little mention of him anywhere. Um, according to the commentary, he actually left screen acting shortly after this story. He had maybe one other project that may have been running concurrently, given the dates given on IMDb. They may have been concurrent projects. 
but then he stopped acting on screen altogether um but he did continue acting in theater which was his passion apparently he didn't have the best time on who um i don't think anything particularly happened to him but the costume was uncomfortable he felt that it was a bit cheap like the sets were cheap but he said like the cast was lovely you know patrick and fraser and everyone else was absolutely lovely but obviously it wasn't quite what he was used to up in that way that, that kind of reminds me of the actor jeffrey dean morgan who nearly quit acting after appearing on star trek enterprise he was one of the um, the reptilians in the mm. and he just like again very similar to what you're saying about roger just like didn't have an issue with the cast but it was like the costuming and the sets and that kind of stuff but like it's i suppose like you know not every like a lot of actors especially i suppose in mainly british actors they either have a huge love of the stage or a love of screen it's rare that you get someone that has a, a huge love of both well unless you're looking at patrick stewart or ian mccallum oh yeah but that, yeah but like, again like that's like <laughs> that's two people <laughs> yeah um <sighs> Sadly, Roger died of cardiac arrest while driving in 1994. You know, I mentioned that his love of theatre and the fact that he spent a lot of time acting in the theatre. Um, if you go to the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford, there's actually a plaque of dedication on one of the seats which reads, In memory of Roger Jones, 60s RSC actor, a creative life. So, mm. even though there isn't that much list about him, like I couldn't even find the date of his death listed anywhere i had to get that from the commentary it wasn't listed on imdb or it wasn't listed on the tardis fan wiki or whatever and he doesn't even have a page on wikipedia it's interesting to know that like he still has you know a legacy and his legacy was on stage yeah like and that and like it's kind of cool like that you know it's always these interesting tidbits that come out of like directors or actors commentary like because like didn't you say like you got an awful lot of information about uh, Douglas Camfield from the uh, audio commentaries. Oh yeah, like I mean, I do it a bit for this, but obviously for this, I uh, for this it's it's more a case of if I have time in the yeah. week, I'll listen to the audio commentary version as well. But for the most part, with most things I watch, I will mm. always watch the audio commentary version. And then there's some Doctor Who stories from like later, like but doc tom and this and stuff where for me it's like listening to the actors describe what's happening and telling their stories is just as fun as watching the episode itself particularly for planet of evil when we yeah. eventually get to it um <laughs> I, I think audio commentaries are great it's one of the things that i dislike about streaming platforms and why for some films and tv shows i will still purchase the physical version mm-hmm. because i miss my audio commentaries yep So, again, awesome information coming out of the trivia spot. Um, and it's always great to hear where Eagles Dare references. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I opened his IMDb page, I was like, that one's going in. <laughs> yep, that one is going in, that one is going in. And as again, I'm holding you to it that once lockdown is over and we eventually get the hangout in real life again, we're watching that movie. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> See, because that was your suggestion in the first place, so therefore you can't grenade on it. <laughs> Uh, so
so um once again guys we come to the main component of the time traveling team podcast the character discussion so we have the doctor the companions both regular and story uh we also have our villains of the piece and then we will go into our overall discussion and give it a score out of five so we start off with the man himself the doctor now trish do you want to go first or will i go first uh i'll go first this time cool uh my first note is science doctor go um i always love seeing the doctor science the shit out of things yeah i loved it when bill did it i i I love it when patrick does it um he did remind me a lot of me though (laughs) when like you have the bit where he's got like all of these pieces of paper scattered everywhere (laughs) like i currently have i'm a little bit more organized um i used to be terrible about it but i currently have like 14 notebooks uh, seven of which I sort of actively use on any given day of the week and when I'm trying to find the notes I need I'm like is it in this one no this one's focused on training no it's not training it's like process improvements where are my process improvement notes they're listed somewhere else <laughs> so he really reminded me a lot of myself yeah um, like you, you you do love notebooks and you do love a list I do love notebooks and I do love a list. That is very true. We actually, going off on a tangent, we actually had a conversation in work today about how at the time of recording, we've never been working from home for over a year. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about like, you know, what things have you learned about yourself? And you know, everyone, you know, shared different things. Um, but then I was like, look, you just wanted to add one thing that I do actually like about working from home is that I get my whiteboard at home. That's like yeah. just for me to use and nobody else. <laughs> Yeah. And so, like, I will write things on a whiteboard. I will then write it on a piece of paper, and then I will type it up, because I'm just weird like that. Yeah, like though again, like it's just our similarities are very eerie because, like, in the in the office, like we'd have like, oh, like, what's our daily task? Oh, check the SOP document. It's like, no, nah, just check white, Paddy's whiteboard behind him there, <laughs> and that was just pretty much it. Um, the thing that I found hilarious, probably like my funniest part of this entire story, mm-hmm. was his like outrage at the idea that they're going to run his findings through a computer. Yeah. Are you? What are you on? Like the shame that he was like, <laughs> "How dare you? I'm a genius. What are you talking about?" And I think it really, like, I don't think we ever really got that, like, that level of, are you taking the piss? <laughs> like, we never, I don't think we ever got that from Bill. No, we, we got, sorry, we got, um, you know, like, you know, shock and incredulity, like, when his abilities to pilot the TARDIS are brought into question. But I don't think he's ever been given, like, the John Henry, you know, versus the steam engine type treatment. Yeah, because, like, I mean, this is something that future doctors do bring in. Like, this, the ego around science is yeah. definitely a thing. You know, but I just found it so funny. Mm. Um, he did redeem himself uh, from last week, in my view. So, obviously, last week we had a very interesting discussion around whether mm-hmm. he was being a bit sexist with Victoria. And mm-hmm. that he was kind of sidelining her and stuff like that that I didn't agree with. If you excuse the end of it where he just told her to go back to the TARDIS, because that wasn't really a character thing. That was Deborah had to leave. Yeah. You know, so I kind of exclude that part because that was, that wasn't script based. That was just necessity. Yeah. Um, He was very understanding 
of the fact that Victoria has no clue of mm. like the advanced tech that they're using at this base. So when Clint is badgering her to no end, asking her all these questions about the engines and stuff, and she's clearly like, I don't have it. What the fuck are you talking about? How the hell am I meant to answer your questions? I do like the doctor sort of, you know, try to calm things down and guide her through it. And was like, okay, can you describe what it looked like? And, you know, was taking her by the hand through it. Yeah. Not being judgmental, not saying like, oh, stop asking her that question. How is she meant to know? But sort of taking her at her own pace, which I really liked. I think it was a nice redemption off of the back of what I said last week. But then we have the other thing where I, I'm going to give it as a positive for him. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe you read it differently, but I'm going to give it as a positive for him, which is that I love how he uses Victoria's quote unquote weakness, which is her heightened emotional state and her screaming out and crying, as a cover for them to have a conversation. <laughs> It's brilliant because he just sort of signals to her to start crying, which looked like him telling her to fuck off, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the fact that he just plays into it and like the fact she's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, keep going, keep going, blow your nose. <laughs> it's like so funny. Uh, so just to confirm for people, right? Uh, prior to the recording sessions, myself and Trish, we do not look at each other's notes. Okay. So I'm going to say now this. Stop. Get, get out of my fucking head. <laughs> because <laughs> i pretty much have i think one or two different things to you so one doctor please stop wearing that fucking coat it gets you into nothing but trouble first you're mistaken for a yeti <laughs> then you're ex- uh, uh, confused for a scavenger like god knows what'll happen next like someone will try like to like, put you as a troll rug on their floor um but um again i actually did kind of the the subject of William Hartnell is saying like I don't think we ever got you know we we're saying like, we don't think we ever got that from him. I thought he was actually drawing inspiration from uh, Bill when he got into the whole compare me to a computer a computer. It was just like, I think I've I never... think he got Bill's indignance. Yes, but I think Bill was... ever got indignant at this particular type of thing. No, he no no definitely he didn't. But he drawed upon his previous incarnations in indignance, and he did it like fantastically, you know. Hmm. Um, and again, like, just taking the subtle same tendencies from his previous incarnation while still adding his own again amazing Patrick Trouton facial performances to it you know um um I liked his discussions with um you know with Penley and Varga and Clint like he had really good interactions with all of them you know uh like especially you know his whole thing of like you know with Clint going look last you know for I'm saying it again I'm not a member of your fucking staff I don't, mm. ha- I don't, I'm not beholden to you at all. I could tip the fuck out the door at any given stage. Um, I like this whole thing with Penley because, you know, again, it's like trying to make Penley, he knows that you, how to confront him. So it's a matter of trying to m- mentally manipulate him into seeing, to doing the right course of action. And then his kind of liaisons again with Varga. I, I love seeing the doctor go up against a strong villain. Because it really puts him on his game, and I think that's when you'll get to see like the best out of any actor that plays the Doctor. You know, yeah. Uh, also, his comedic timing of when he first goes in and he sees the Irish Wars, and he immediately is like, "Nope, not today. Thank you very much. Goodbye." And he tries to walk out the door again. Um, and again, like you, like I loved his interactions with Victoria throughout the the latter half of the story, 
and you know the whole come on, come on cry cry and like she was doing her damnedest and then he can't open a fucking test tube and it's just <laughs> <laughs> um, so no like again a fantastic performance from Patrick Troden here and really strong doctor performance you know definitely um, like I said you know last week was a bit of a struggle for me which was unfortunate but mm-hmm. this one it was you know Back guns to... blazing hang down yeah brilliant performance that we've come to expect from Patrick and a brilliant showing of the second Doctor that we've come to expect. Yeah, exactly. Again, it's like, I suppose we've talked before about every, like, across the course of like 20 plus stories for the various incarnations of Doctor, there's always going to be dud stories, but there's always going to be good stories with dud performances. Mm. So we could kind of put maybe Abomina Snowman into the, the latter camp there whereas here it gets just strong throughout you know yeah so we have the companions now and we have as always jamie victoria and this week we have penley indeed so should we do victoria and jamie first yep cool would i go first yeah sure go on so what would be a v word for peril because <laughs> i think this is very this is very much a perils of victoria type episode yeah and yeah, it <laughs> like it's unfortunate because there's two things that stand out to me in this that like i view as kind of unfortunate one is that unlike previous episodes she didn't have as many chances to stand out to shine mm. you know like i would say with the exception of helping with the distraction um later on the only kind of thing that I thought was a really kind of shiny moment for her is when she sasses Jamie back going, I'm not going to wear that skirt so you can fuck right off. Aren't they shorts? I They're either hot pants, shorts or something, but they definitely don't leave a whole lot to the imagination. I think they're hot pants. There's actually yeah. a very funny bit on the audio commentary. Yeah. Where, um, when, when they get to that scene where Jamie's sort of riling her up mm. and like you can tell the Fraser is just a massive flirt. Yeah, and like he's just there to to Deborah Watting being like, well, you know, like if you had decided to wear that skirt or to wear that outfit, <laughs> do you know, I wouldn't yeah. complain. Like, <laughs> oh god, keep it in your pants, Fraser. <laughs> keep it in your kilt. Um, and yeah, so it, it was just like after she's had two really, I would say even three really strong stories because I did like her in Evil of the Daleks. I thought she mm. was. Even though, as you said, it was a bit of a Cinderella type thing, she was engaging. She was interesting, mm. and we had again a really strong performance from uh, in Tomb last week. The we discussed the the treatment of her, but we also discussed her like the fact that she stood on her own and she yeah. stood really well on her own. Mm. Here, we've I think like, this is probably the weakest performance from Victoria in terms of just like that consistency like we've now kind of gone and we've dipped a small bit in the quality of the victoria performance i would say and the last thing and it just it's so out of character it's just so random and i like i didn't know like i i suppose like looking back maybe i shouldn't have been included in the support summary because it literally led to nothing was a comment that when there's the mention of being sent to the rehabilitation camps in africa it's the concept of going to Africa which scares her as opposed to being sent to a rehabilitation camp. And I was like, that's that's a very strange reaction. Yeah, I have two reads on that. Okay. Um, one is period specific as in 1860s racism. 
Mm. Um, the other is that, bear in mind she comes from the 1860s, traveling to Africa in the 1860s was fucking dangerous, man. Like, you know, in terms of, I don't mean disease in terms of like, oh, Africa's full of disease, but um, diseases not natural to the UK. Yeah, and you know? I suppose like terrain and wildlife and yeah, flora and fauna. wildlife, flora and fauna, like you know, malaria, that type of thing, um, was something that you know explorers went to Africa, and not all of them came back. Well, okay, that one I'd agree with, but the first one you said about eighteen sixties racism, it doesn't really gel with her treatment of Kemble though. Yeah, but he was in her home territory, not the other way around. <laughs> yeah, it was just like it just felt so like I, after seeing such a like a sweet and innocent and ni- a nice relationship with Kemble, for her to come up with that line, it just felt so kind of out of the blue, and I, I, I was a bit like, I was a bit taken aback by it because again, we did discuss the whole idea of you know racism towards certain characters at at the time. That the story is set like uh, Maxtable and how how he considers Kemble to be like simple or savage or whatever that may case case may be, mm. and I just thought that that comment was very was of the ilk of Maxtable and it just seemed very unvictoria like. So but if it if it was in relation to like the second component of like Africa, the continent itself is not a real safe place to travel in. Then like yeah I maybe I yeah I'd actually kind of be on board with that comment. Yeah. So two things. A, mm-hmm. Kemble is Turkish, not African. I, so I, I, I know, but he is. Um, <laughs> so he so is as in her, her treatment of one doesn't necessarily dictate her treatment of the other, is my point. Yeah. Um, I do think it's more, and bearing in mind, my description of traveling through Africa in the 1860s as being dangerous is a gross simplification, right? Yeah. Um, but I think it was more Africa the place <laughs> yeah, as opposed to I, Africans I, the people. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose, like, and like again, maybe it's just me kind of jumping at shadows here, but it's just like I suppose after last week's conversation about you know the depictions of the Tibetans, and we've talked about um, mindset of writing towards you know portrayals and stuff like that. Maybe it's just like again, kind of it's like, going back and taking like a, like an in depth look at Doctor Who. It's like these are things I'd never noticed before, and it's just interesting to bring them up and just to see other people's opinions on them. You know? Yeah. Definitely. Um, for me with Victoria, first of all, I want her cloak. Yeah, it's pretty bitching, all right. It's like <laughs> it's really cool. It's a it's a cool like your know, adventurous cloak. Yeah, I want it. If anyone makes Victoria cloaks and wants to send me one, or send me a link <laughs> and I'll buy it off you, that works. Mm. Um, I did have to laugh at her outrage over the uniform <laughs> of the people on the base. Because, okay, they are really short shorts. They're hot pants, right? Yeah. But given the fact that she has shown she's willing to wear, you know, stuff above the knee mm-hmm. in tomb, you know, it was a little bit hypocritical of her, I think, to get so yeah. up on her high horse. But I love the fact that she basically called Jamie on being a bit of a perf. Yeah. Who likes <laughs> short shorts? Jamie likes short shorts. <laughs> um. I agree it's very much a sort of Victoria in peril story for the first half. The one mm-hmm. thing I really liked though um, in the second half of the story is she 
She serves as a great translator for the audience in regards to what the hell is the doctor going on about? Because her father was a scientist. So while she may not understand things like ion engines and things Mm -hmm. like that, she does have a basic understanding of scientific principle. So Mm -hmm. when the doctor is describing what he is going to do, she serves as a great translator to the audience on what that actually means. Yeah. Which is something that I don't think we've really had a companion do that before. We've had people questioning, but they never reiterate in simple terms. And it's not to my knowledge. I'm trying to think, because I think the closest person would be... Like, see, this is the thing, right? You So you had, in terms of the science people, you had Ian, mm-hmm. Vicky... Sarah Kingdom Stephen to one extent but we saw that literally blow up in his face um, and that's pretty much it and whereas with Ian it was like almost MacGyverish. yeah so but he, he Ian took initiative more so than that, taking instruction from the doctor Vicky's future knowledge, knowledge was in advance of where we're coming from or the, or the time we're coming from the same with Sarah Kingdom and the same with Stephen so Victoria is probably the only companion lately of a close enough time period with a very similar scientific knowledge so yeah she would serve as the perfect translator for the audience yeah i think the closest thing we've gotten to this is probably back in marco polo where you'd ian complain uh, explaining condensation condensation and uh, like the let's put the bamboo shoots into the fire to create boom booms yeah that's probably the closest we've gotten Mm -hmm. um but the second of those the bamboo thing that was ian himself not him translating for anyone yeah, that's what I mean. Like, it's like the MacGyver-ish type thing, yeah. you know? So I think the, cl- the closest thing we had was Ian explaining the condensation thing. Yeah. As an idea of the doctors that he's explaining for somebody else. So I actually quite like that. I think it serves a great purpose. I think it mm-hmm. reinforces the educational component of the show that we've kind of veered away from, in a way, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because, like, I suppose, like, when the show first started, it was all about either... Like it, it was, there wasn't huge, such a huge focus on scientific education, but there definitely was the focus on the historical education. Yeah, and I think that's like when they got rid of the pure historicals, that kind of went away because yeah, we have stuff in a play setting, but there's always a science fiction element to it. Mm. So for me, I think this was an interesting development for Victoria. Cause I hadn't really thought about it in the episodes up to now. Mm. That like her father was a scientist and a very good one as well, from what we from what we saw. So, and her mother sadly was dead. So she yeah. clearly like, you know, I, I saw from this image of her like sitting in his lab and him explaining what he's doing to her. And she clearly retained that information. And, mm-hmm. you know, me totally reading overly into things. But like, it's nice that through the doctor, she still has that connection with yeah. her father and with her childhood. And I, I just think it was a great addition to her character that counterbalances her victoria in peril motif yeah like because as we've said before like non-contemporary companions or historical based companions they have a tendency they they could have the potential pitfalls of being like oh you uneducated savage type thing or not Mm. savage but you like you're but again like we've seen jamie really adapt and we're also seeing victoria adapt as well which is a nice thing to see that it's not just you know favoring one side over the other type thing you know Speaking of Jamie, mm-hmm. you sneaky bugger, Jamie. 
<laughs> trying to get Victoria in. Because I was there, like, up until recently, I've been like, up until today, I've been like, oh, you know, Jamie's very much like Victoria's the younger sister and like, he has to take care of her. Dude was there kind of going, you could, you know, you'd look nice if you wore a short skirt. It's like, Jamie, stop being such a pervert. <laughs> yeah, because like, I, was, I, was, I was looking at that scene of like, does Jamie have game? Because he's about as subtle as a brick to the face. But like, like, he's like, like there's the fact that he kind of sits back, hands behind the head with a big cheesy grin on his face. And like, it's kind of ballsy to just say it blatantly outright. Do you know what that reminded me of? His sort of, oh. his positioning and stuff is in Empire after Leia, Leia kisses, kisses Luke in the medley. Luke. Yeah, yeah. And Luke just sort of <laughs> leans back with his hands behind his head. It's like almost yeah. the exact same facial expression. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and the, the the boyish good look with the same bowl cut. <laughs> yeah, and like it's sort of you know when we compare the Jamie of even from the faceless ones, where he wasn't mm. really quite sure how to deal with um, uh, Samantha. Samantha, you know, he wasn't really quite sure at the start, and yeah, over the course of the story, he you know got more comfortable with her, and then he snogged her to steal her ticket. Um, mm. This is such a big development from the sort of shy you know stop no don't touch me you know yeah sort of almost like girls ooh type jamie that we had at the beginning <laughs> when it comes time for them to part ways is it going to be like a sort of like a hawkeye oh, sorry hawkeye hot lips like bye bye and then just like this big passionate kiss for about two minutes that was a great goodbye yeah <laughs> <laughs> see ya see ya <laughs> it's just like one of my oh, favorite God, moments in mash i i love that show Oh, anyway, Jamie, we, yeah. we shouldn't get derailed by Mash again two weeks yeah. in a row. <laughs> God help us when there's a fucking medical themed episode. <laughs> uh. So yeah, um sneaky bugger. Um but again, you know you know, all jokes aside, still Victoria's safety is his priority. Yeah. And you know, he's willing to do anything. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll go out and help you explore. But I'm doing it because I want to find Victoria. And he yeah. gets so, like... I was waiting for him to just to deck Clint in the face. <laughs> oh, like, that that was the thing. It's like, his his protection for his friends, and in this case, specifically Victoria, is like, we're in... Unsure, like, and it's the thing, I suppose, that Jamie always has. Is like, look, no matter what we're in, no matter what situation we're in, if we're on uncharted territory or in front of charity, whatever the case is, my priority is my friend. And if someone gets in my way... I don't care. Mm. And while some people may say like, no, you need to get on the side of the locals, the type thing, he has his priorities and he like sticks to them because, and I think that's what makes Jamie, Jamie is his loyalty to people. Yeah. I think in this story, um, sadly, it's kind of another one for me where Jamie doesn't really drive the plot a whole lot. No. Um, by his own actions. But through Jamie, we get to see the differences between Penley and Clint between mm-hmm. The other scientists on the base, so Arden and those, and people like Store. Joe, you know, we kind yeah. of get to see comparisons of people through Jamie's interactions with them, even though Jamie himself doesn't really contribute a whole lot plot development wise. No. Uh, no, like I agree. Like he's like again, like because look. I will, I'll just say no the, the supporting cast in this is phenomenal 
Oh yeah, they're um, great. They're brilliant. Like, actually, I completely agree with Derek yeah. Martinus. They were fantastic. <laughs> and like actually, uh, one person I think we f- we forgot to mention in the trivia is the actor that plays Store, whose name I can't remember now at the moment. But his main role, I suppose the role he's most famous for, is he plays Archie Ives in The Great Escape. He's Stephen Queen's escape buddy. I know him because uh, he appears in a later Doctor Who story, which is one of my favourites. Okay, I'm trying to remember his face from that, but we'll figure it He's out. He's in Terror of the Zygons. Oh, yeah, he is. He is. He He's the, the landlord, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, like, you know, again, like, as I said, this is a story with a fantastic supporting cast. And as we've always said, the companions don't need to necessarily bring something new to the, store, to the game or the table every single time. They can just be in a room to help create other character interactions which is what they did here but what I will say like the only other thing I have to say about Jamie is that like I think only a real Highlander would think about wrestling a fully grown bear whilst his own legs are paralysed yeah like we fully grown the, fully grown is relative as we discussed in the trivia but yeah, yeah. But like, you know, shh, don't, don't, don't give the insider secrets but like we could have seen like the absolute peak and immediate finish of the McGrimmon effect if he had fought that bear <laughs> How tough is this anyway? Well, it's a fucking bear. So there we go. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, it did come into effect a little bit against the ice warrior when it woke up. Yeah, um, but like, I, I, but he was. I, I would say like, no, like he wasn't taken by surprise because he literally saw it fucking coming from. But uh, it's Bernard Breslau, so there, you know, Bernard Breslau just wins. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, I again agree with you. Like you know, a solid performance, but nothing new to the table. Mm. And so now we have Penley. Yeah, so Penley's an interesting one for me. Um, mm-hmm. He's clearly someone, he has his priorities and they do not align with computer. Who I, I'm almost treating computer like mother from Alien. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, no, like, yeah, no, I, I kind of, I'd go the, there. The, the dedication to what did, whatever I say. And like, he's a man who can make the tough decisions. Um, I'll get to it more when we talk about Clint and Garrett, but like he was able to make that tough call. He didn't need the computer. He his gut told him what was the good thing to do, and he was willing to follow through with it. But what I liked about him was that he was willing to let others do their own job, and he didn't hold a grudge. Like at the end, he was like, mm. "Clint, don't, you know, don't you have reports to write? Because I don't do that. That that that's your job. That's what you do. Do you?" And there was no sort of "I'm taking over." It was okay. Yeah, I did my part. You do your part. No, I I agree. Because uh, like my notes here are like he's a a, a rogue, take no guff scientist with a taste for Wednesday Dale cheese. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like this is like this is like um, Wallace after like you know Gromit who just gets sick of his shit and boots him out the door. But um, I like he's got little time for bureaucratic grandstanding, which is what Clint repeatedly kind of is guilty of throughout the story. Mm. But even, as you said, even with all that, like at the very end. Like he's Penley is a big enough individual that he's not going to lord it over Clint for being Clint, and like he gives him a pure chance to kind of like now that the computer's out of the way, just show us all how you are as good as you say you are type thing, and like he extend like he, he extends the olive branch and it's really cool to see you know. Yeah, my weird thing about Penley right, I, th- this may have just been me right. I'm not sure that man's entirely stable. Because at one point in episode two or three, mm-hmm. he has an entire conversation with himself in the mirror. Yeah. And it came across as if he was 
a bit tapped because then like he speaks to Store, but then it cuts to the fact that Store's unconscious. And it's like, mm. is he okay? Like, is he actually all there? Yeah. Because, be like the... I mean, it does beg the question of, he is a scientist, he understands the impact, yet he still abandoned the project. Hmm. For what? His pride? Yeah, because I suppose like you, it would have to be, it would have to be mostly pride because, like dealing with a, like an incompetent boss, it's like that's not a big enough reason to walk away from a world-saving project. It, it hmm. does have to be pride that kind of coupled with that, you know. Um, but like in terms of like talking to himself and if he's all there, it's like uh, Lionel Blackadder is like, you're talking to yourself. Yes, it's the only way I can be guaranteed of an intelligent conversation. Yeah, well, there's a thing. Like, I mean, I talk to myself while I'm doing something. Mm-hmm. Like, if I'm, I code content for a living. Um, if I'm coding content, I'm like, okay, I do this, do this. But there's one thing, like muttering to yourself, to make sure mm-hmm. you've checked everything off is one thing. Having a full blown like, powwow, pull yourself up by your bootstraps type conversation with yourself, it's a bit different. <laughs> I see pride. I see power. I see a badass butter. <laughs> cool Pendley. <laughs> oh, he should have said. Oh, he should have done that himself. And Jamie sled down the the glacier to the base. <laughs> Does that make Jamie your brother? <laughs> pretty, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Jamie, you're dead. <laughs> oh God. Uh-huh. <laughs> um. I, when I hear stuff about actors only appearing one time in Doctor Who, sometimes I, I'm disappointed because Peter Salas is a great actor. Mm. He is across everything he does. And here he's great in this. I'm like, I would love to have seen you come back in another role or just in a different story or something. Like, he's great in this. Yeah, it's one thing that sort of, again, on the commentary, Deborah Watling kind of made a comment, which is that, Doctor Who got some amazing fucking actors mm. that in some ways they probably kind of shouldn't have been able to get. I mean, it was a very low budget children's science fiction program. Mm. And the fact that like you even get someone like Peter Salas for one story. Never mind the fact that he he was going to um, come back again or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she she kind of said like you know, you'd sort of find yourself wondering what are you doing on our show? <laughs> yeah, and I think it's one of those things where you know they did it because it was fun, or they did it because their kids or their grandkids would love it. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Um, well, yeah, like I do sometimes, you know, wish that like some of these actors, like I would have loved to have seen um, Julian Glover again, like in a story later on um, that survives. <laughs> well, no, you, well, well, you will. Like he's in a Doctor Who, uh, sorry, a Tom Baker story. But well, yeah, but as in like of the same era of like a. Uh, Hartnell trophy yeah. is it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh definitely, definitely. Um so you you do want to see a lot of these actors again, do you mm. know? Um and even, you know, jumping the timeline massively. 
um, you know, Jean Marsh who plays Sarah Kingdom, mm-hmm. you know, she comes back, you know, many doctors from now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, for one story. And at that point, she was a resounding success in her own right. Like, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? The things that she'd done for her own, like in her own career were fantastic. And the fact that she came back to do a Doctor Who, mm-hmm. kind of like, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, um. And and speaking of uh, G. Marsh, Sarah Kingdom, I suppose like the biz, the biggest success in that regards is uh, Nicholas Courtney, who we'll be discussing at nauseum in the next couple of months. Mm. Oh, one last thing on Julian Glover, by the way. Yep. Um. Depending on how crap the world is come November, mm-hmm. I may be adding him to my autograph list. Get him, Malik Rick. get him to sign up Malik Rick get him to sign Malik Rick again I'll be incredibly jealous of you it is incredibly dependent on yeah the, the, the current the world. plight but yes um, moving on yes moving on from depressing things to depressing villains <laughs> <laughs> so we have Garish Clint and the Ice Warriors with a specific focus on Varga and Zondal so do you want to go from lowest to, to highest here? Okay, I want to do Garrett and Clint first, right? Because yeah, that, that's right. Again, that's... you and I had a conversation before this started, um, mm-hmm. where okay, so we've changed things up from the way that we do things, and so Paddy sent me on the list of names of people that we were going to be discussing, and it was only today before, like this morning, as we were getting ready to record, that. I scanned Paddy's notes and put the people in their proper places. I do not understand why you put Clint and Garrett in the villain category. <laughs> so, my logic behind this now, right, is that, and I remember like, when I, after I finished watching this, I asked uh, you a question about should, because they, because they come up very frequently, should we create a separate section for villains of circumstance as opposed to outright villains? Because in this story, I, there, they are, they are roadblocks to the success of the Doctor and the Companions, but they're not, they're not villains, and I was like, I don't think they're even villains. I, I don't consider them anything other than just characters in this mm. story. They're not companions, certainly, but they're not villains either. I think if I was to put them in one, I would have kept them in companion, was where I put them originally. Um. Mm. I would have kept them there because they're they're not roadblocks, really. Do you know? They're no more a villain than, you know, how do I put it? They're no more a villain to the story than a train conductor would be if you wanted to get off the train early. Do you know? He's not being a bad guy. He's not working against you. Like, Clint and Garrett never actively worked against them. They didn't care about them a whole lot. But that's really as far as it went. They never tried to hurt them directly or indirectly. Yeah, but see, see, this is the thing that I'm I'm kind of struggling with, okay? Is that they, right, they they don't, as you say, they're, they're not out to cause malicious harm or malicious intent towards the the TARDIS crew mm. but Clint's whole thing and again it's the role that he's in 
his whole thing is about the glacier, the ionizer, and saving face in front of the world council. But there's like there's points in time where it's he puts all our concerns aside for that, and again because it's at the plight of our heroes. So like for example, now we're even when Arden says, "Oh, I think uh, like we should go look for the girl." It's like, no, you have your job to do, and he get and himself and Jamie get into it. And as we kind of saw, about you know, we were expecting him to half punch Clint out because of it. And but at the same time, I'm brought back to the fact of he's doing his job. Yeah, like he's no different. Okay, he is different, right? So in terms of my individual character breakdown, Clint, he is different from Hobson from the Moonbase, right? In yes. the type of leader that he is, we'll get to that. In a yeah, yeah. But we put Hobson as a companion because. He like the bad guys in this are the ice warriors, yeah, and the climate, (laughs) (laughs) and Um, and the computers possibly. No, but again, like so, I wouldn't put Clint as a villain because he was a nuisance. Hmm. That's about as far as I'm willing to go for both of them. Nuisance is about as far as I'm willing to go. (laughs) So, like, I no, I I I completely agree with that because. Right, with the Hobson thing, the reason I put Hobson as a companion is because throughout this entire thing, up until the very end, Clint is, he's a nuisance, up until the very end of the story. Hobson's thing is, once the Ice War, sorry, the Ice War, the Cybermen have been confirmed to be the threat, he's all hands companion mode with the Doctor and the rest of the guys. Therein lies the difference between the two of them. I think the difference, though, is... I think the setting is different. I think the direct impact is different. Like Hobson, you're isolated on the moon. Hmm. You have like, to get stuck in. <laughs> yeah, but like, like and you know, sorry, I thought because I thought you were talking about like you know, like well, technically they're both dealing with an environmental disaster. This one happens to be just right outside the fucking front door. Um, hmm. But yeah, no, obviously, uh, what is this enemy of my enemy? Well, not even enemy of my enemy, but you know, danger makes for strange bedfellows type thing. Um, I like, but no, like, see, that's the thing I wanted to kind of talk to you about. This is that I don't view. I don't consider them to be out and out villains. And even saying like as a villains of, villains, villains of circumstance. Villains. Villains of the films. Villains of circumstance again is a stretch because in my head I'm going like they're just doing their fucking job. They're not there's no malicious intent caused by the fact that they're doing their job. They're not like shall we say um what's his name? Dude from Aqua Tower. Security chief. Oh him, yeah. Yeah, him. They're not like they're not <laughs> like him. Yeah. Oh Christ, what's his name? Gar I'm gonna say Gar it's not Gargamel. But Garton. Garton. Uh him, yes. They're again their their benefit is look for the whole purpose of saving the earth. Now Clint does have that level of egotism to saying like I can't make it uh I can't risk a decision because it could risk my standing in the World Council. And that doesn't really make him overly favorable, or but at the end, he, he completely like once the danger has passed, you actually get to see that Clint isn't a villain; he's just a pain in the ass. Yeah, I think going from the beginning of the story to the end, they have the same goal, which is they need to push back the ice, mm-hmm. and that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, 
is he a bit heartless yeah but i wouldn't put him as a villain and maybe we need to just have you know the doctor companions prominent characters and villains maybe we need to have prominent characters who don't fit into either bucket because like there there are like you know we've and like we've talked about certain characters in the past that like are only villains in circumstance by the loosest definition of the fucking term i think clint and gareth definitely are the ones that make the requirement for another section so let's just go through do you have anything more to say about Clint I have a few other just quick um, notes on him uh, so what have I got here is that um, he's someone that has been so successful in his career that the concept of self-doubt is so alien to him and that then kind of maybe it leads into like an unintentional air of arrogance that alienates other people away from him or rubs other people up the wrong way and again it's like he just he can't see it because of how like good he's been in his job and again that's kind of done at the very end when he realizes that look i have been very difficult i have been in the wrong here penley can you please forgive me and penley goes you do what you do best which is run this show yeah like my thing with clint is like the fir- the first thing i had to write down was computer says no <laughs> that, that, yeah. is literally, that is him <laughs> yeah. in a nutshell yeah um He's an organizer, not a scientist. And that's where he differs from Hobson. Yeah. Um, Hobson was in the thick of it with people, whereas Clint mm-hmm. is just directing. Um, yeah. And like that comes to a head. And like I think it's actually a very sad moment for him in some ways in episode six, where he becomes nothing. In the end, he was nothing more than a hostage to get Garrus to do what the Ice Warrior wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, like that was that was his like he was expendable. Garrett was the important one, and he only serves a purpose in scaring her into doing what the Ice Warriors wanted. Um, yeah. He's very much, you know, th- you know, Penley says it himself. Like he, his heart is made of computers. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. He he doesn't care for the human factor at all. But in one way, he's not wrong. His his whole thing is the project must come first. Hmm. This project is to help slow the tide of a new ice age that would basically end human life on the planet. That is a fairly big fucking responsibility. And given that responsibility and the potential global impact, he's not a nice person to work with, but he's also not wrong. You know, mm. as unfortunate as it would be if they never found Victoria or if Jamie had never made it back or whatever, as unfortunate as that would be, he has a lot he has a responsibility to the whole of Europe that he has to consider. It doesn't excuse the way he behaves, but it explains part of it, I think. Do you know? Did you ever watch Scrubs to any huge extent? I watched bits of it. Do you remember Kelso? The yeah. Chief Medic? That's who he reminds me of. Because there's a scene, there's an episode where like they all think that when Kelso steps his foot out the door, he, he carries on being the same self-centered jackass that he always is. But it, at the very end of the episode, he takes a step out the door and he's just, he's a, he's a despondent, broken man because like it's been another day in a fucking hellish situation in the hospital. Whereas here, I can imagine, say, that if Victoria and Jamie had been lost and the thing was successful, 
he would have apologized. He probably would have brought the doctor aside and he would have apologized to him sincerely. Mm. I think the difference between Clint and someone like Kelso, though, is Kelso, to, to my knowledge of Scrubs, I've only seen episodes here and there. Mm. While in the hospital, he took joy in being an asshole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Clint uh, does, that, not, take, Clint does yeah, not take any that, joy in the decisions that he makes. He's just a robot when he makes yeah. them. He enjoys being right, but he doesn't, I don't think he takes any joy in. Uh, like it'd be in making a tough decision, you know. Yeah. Um, his right hand woman then is Miss Garrett or Jane, yeah. as we find out her name is. <laughs> um, <laughs> she's someone who I I couldn't put a pin on her, right? <laughs> because on the one hand, she has this weird love affair with that computer, hmm. as in yeah, like, it, it gets it gets creepy. Like it really it does. Like creepy. She starts stroking it at one point, and I'm like, "Yeah, no, no, just, just stop." And she clearly believes in the mission. Yeah. Oh, she's all about what's right for the planet. That, like, you know, going to Penley, risking Clint's ire, kind of going like. But that's the thing, right? So she goes to Penley because she recognizes that they need Penley. But then when Penley's there, making a decision, she's like, "Oh, but the computer, the mm. computer. We have to trust the computer." It's, it's weird. I don't think they pinned down where her faith lies well is her faith in people like penley is her faith in the computer is her faith in clint i don't think so on the last one but she does agree to whatever he says she doesn't push back against it she goes behind his back but she doesn't actually bar that first conversation she doesn't push back against him Hmm. the thing though that i find interesting is when it comes to making a decision without the computer so when the computer shits itself and can't function anymore mm-hmm. because of the logic breakdown or whatever um clint basically says i cannot be the one who yeah. makes this call and we've known for a while that like he says to the doctor his public opinion of him is very important to him yeah and he cannot be that one because he won't risk the public backlash What's her excuse? That's yeah, because like, like I again look. Our notes are like eerily similar. Because <laughs> um, I was like, I again I view her as a nuisance mostly because of like that mid-story heel turn where she just kind of goes all in with Clint in the computer. But it's, it's just it's so weird because it's almost like zealous. It's a very zealous way that she goes over, yeah. and is it. Maybe because she switches over to think that look if if I if he falls do I fall as well so it's maybe in my best interest to make sure that the project succeeds with him as the head of it. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think she's an interesting character, and yeah, her portrayal her portrayal was fabulous. Um, I just don't think they pinned her down quite as well because there was probably too many characters that they were trying to develop, and I think I think she suffered a little bit from that. And like, I think maybe some of, because he didn't like impact the plot whatsoever, I think maybe Store's screen time could have gone over to Garrett and the Store type character could have just been Penley's own internal, you know, monologue over the writing versus the yeah. re- the rebel, you know? Yeah. Go real existentialist on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now so, we've got the real villains though. Yes, the actual villains. So wait, uh, question. 39 stories in, have we created a new uh, category 
four characters in in the sto- in the show. I don't think it, they need to be in every episode, but I think where where they are clearly not villains, yeah, but they don't work closely enough with our heroes to be companions. They will go into a new, another prominent prominent character characters. Yeah. Okay, cool, perfect. History has been made today. <laughs> uh, but the Ice Warriors, yes. Um, interesting design. Shame about the mouthpiece, though. Yeah. Their mouthpiece was really badly done. Uh, mm-hmm. There's one or two bits where it works well. But for the most part, there is no connection. And like, bearing in mind, their audio is being pumped in from the booth, right? Yeah. They're not saying that shit on, on set. Yeah, the, the mouths pu- don't, it doesn't sync up with uh, the, 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 the audio coming through. Yeah, it's being pumped in on the day and the sync up is really bad. I don't know if that's just trying to move the prosthetic to get the prosthetic lips to move. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it's an interesting design. Shame about the mouthpiece and that fucking hissing, laughing, wheezing, whatever the it's fuck to get noise across- that was. I think it's to get across the point that they're reptilian with the kind of the hissing and because like doctors. Okay, so so first of all, don't do that because that goes right into my eardrum and it's just entirely unpleasant. Um, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that, right? Mm -hmm. But then they have this weird, like, if you imagine an asthmatic Darth Vader, there's this constant, they're breathing. Jesus. is ridiculous how, how congested is that fucking individual if he's an asthmatic Darth Vader well given the way I messaged it to you last night and, yeah. the, and the comparison I made with you last night you can probably tell how annoying I found that well I'm, to be fair that, that that comparison is more concern than annoyance it's also annoyance you do remember oh, I, your option you're, you're, you're volunteering to sleep in a bathroom yeah <laughs> um bit of both <laughs> yeah um but i think they're an interesting design i think they're an interesting concept i think that if slash when they come back um i want to see that design grow and evolve and the same like the cybermen were very annoying in tent planets yeah, they but they've gotten they've gotten so much better just like after three stores so I'm really interested to see the Ice Warriors go through that same evolution of mm. development. And uh, the same with the costumes as well, because there's two distinct types of costume in this. There is the ones for Zondal and Varga, who I'm assuming is kind of an officer type costume. Mm. And then there's the other guys, specifically Turok as well, who I think was played by Sonny Cal- Caldenez, the guy yeah. who played Kemble. Yeah. Yep. Um, but <laughs> Zondal and Varga's one, they kind of like giant avocados. <laughs> the body the body side of things like yeah it, it's very interesting the main difference between the main difference that i see between the two sort of classes of mm-hmm. ice warriors is that uh the speaking parts yeah um <laughs> they have a much more open face yeah whereas the soldiers the soul the sh- soldiers their mm-hmm. um headpiece their helmet comes a lot further down their face. Yeah, it's it's almost like the juggernaut helmet. Yeah. Yeah. Um so 
other than like the aesthetic side of things, uh, what else did you think about the Ice Warriors? But if you're, are we doing Vargran Zandal now, or are we just still doing the Ice Warriors well, as a species? Well, I, uh, the Ice Warriors as, as a species. There's not really much else I have to say. I find them interesting yeah. and I want to see more, but their mm. design left a little bit to be desired mm. for me. I love their weaponry. I love the concept behind their weaponry. Mm. It's like, a, Sonic. like the, the Sonic Ray that essentially the the effect is it more or less turns your organs inside out, inside your body. You are one messed up motherfucker. <laughs> but no, that, that's the effect. Like like when the camera effect almost like kind of does a weird, and you see it again in later stories, you know what I'm on about. I do, but just really like, I really like what their gun does. <laughs> it's like, Jesus. No, okay. What it does to people, I don't like. I like the concept behind it because <laughs> we've seen, uh, what is it? We have the Daleks, we've uh, who like their weapon we've just talked about before. I think it's like an interesting concept. The Cybermen, we talked about their the evolving of their weapons in terms of you know, mm. the, the initial light cannon, then it became those weird stun gun type thingies. Um, so here with the Ice Warriors, because like we know that they're going to be coming back in the future, um, that again I think it's interesting to see like a, retur- a reoccurring villain. With a weaponry that isn't a ray gun, you know. Yeah. That's what I meant. I didn't mean I take some sort of weird popcorn type pleasure from fucking watching them use the weapons. Weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Varga and Zondal. I'll I'll be honest, right? Mm-hmm. I don't understand why you put Zondal on the list. Um, he's there. Um. He gets taken out by a stink bomb. <laughs> That's effectively what it is. Like it sounds so much cooler. Is there like, is there a reason why you wanted to discuss him in particular? Um, so I think it's just like the nature of the fact that he's he's more prominent. He's obviously one. Like, he's one of the two most prominent of the five ice warriors. Um, but he's also like not to the same extent in terms of the relationship he has with. Um, Varga, I was going to make. I, I think in my head I had a comparison between first elder and second elder, in the sense of like he's he offers advice. Some of it's the kind of like like what is the worst possible option that you know we can come up with here. <laughs> Zondel comes out with it and Varga points like, okay, that sounds stupid. So let's go with the more logical side of things. Um, but I, th- I think it was just by virtue of the fact that like, he was probably the more he had more screen time of all the ice warriors, with the exception of Varga. I thought maybe like there might you might have an interesting thought on them, but other than the fact that he's a bit of a um, kind of like he's the one that comes up with the bad ideas that the Varga manages to eliminate perfectly, um, yeah, that's pretty much all there was to say about him. Yeah, I think he's uh, he's a bit more bloodthirsty than Varga, maybe. Mm-hmm. He's got l- less patience. Yeah, that's, I, that, that's what. <laughs> that's what I mean like as in like he comes up with the bad idea so that Varga can kind of go right cool we're not going with that option yeah so on to Varga himself so my main thing with Varga right was mm-hmm. I was sort of taken aback by him from pretty much the beginning so from episode 2 because literally in the same conversation like three sentences apart he goes from his priority is to use Victoria to figure out how did they defrost him? What's the situation? Like, what's the situation on the ground? You know, type thing. 
and to help him defrost his warriors so they can return to their planet. Right? And again, interesting choice that, you know, again, Victoria knows that, like, the red planet is Mars and, you know, a bit more scientific knowledge there. Yeah. But literally, like, two sentences later, he's done a complete 180 and he's like, well, we'll have to decide whether to return to our planet or take over yours. Like, what the hell? You were literally just saying how you wanted to go home. And now it's suddenly changed to, well, no, we want to take over your planet as well. Like, what the fuck did that? Why? So, like, I, I think probably I would rationalize that as, you know, it's like, we have no idea what's going on here. Let's get the fuck out of here. And then probably after viewing how easily he beat Jamie and his, whatever information he gleans from Victoria, it's like, well, maybe we might be able to fulfill the purpose that we first came here for. Whatever that purpose was, you know? Yeah, I think, I think that's the problem, though, is that there was, like, there was Not no reason. Yeah. Do you know? They it's were the they were a good bad guy, but they didn't have a reason is behind the, being a bad guy. The penne chicken arabiata argument all over again. I think so. Um, yeah, no, I I can see, like, but again, I suppose, like, and it, it's strange in a in a six episode story, they did they couldn't find time, but I, again, maybe if you remove the character of store, that's a bit more screen time to be able to develop that idea. Yeah, I'll get to my feelings on Store and, and a few other characters when we get mm. to our overall. Um, but I think I think the Ice Warriors as a concept were great. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in seeing more. I just wish that they had more um, clearly defined purpose in the story, and like that we've other than them being evil because I I don't like the Daleks have a reason behind it. Yeah, but for other villains i don't like evil for the sake of being evil like when the doctor's like oh we could help you it's like okay mm. but you know if he's maybe he doesn't trust them to not you know double cross him or something do you know what i mean like there, there there was no yeah. there was no reason behind it yeah do you know no I, I i get what you're saying again actually yeah thinking about it it's like it's just reactionary it's just la- kind of lashing out yeah. um what I will do say is I one point about Varga that I actually thought he was a very shrewd commander because clearly their code would be that Zondel would be executed for letting the Doctor and Victoria escape. Mm. But by virtue of the fact that he had now has only three other warriors remaining with him on a hostile planet, it's better to keep the numbers than to like punish him for his mistake. So I I think like again like he, he rather than like obeying the letter of the law as commander, he decides to keep Zondel around to utilize him as potentially just an extra body, and then will once he succeeds, then will make him then punish him. Yeah, I think like as a leader, I think he's an interesting character, mm. but I I couldn't get into like his what was his motivation. <laughs> <laughs> what's <laughs> yeah, Bernard Breslau? So what's my motivation behind this scene? You're a big fucking space reptile. Yeah. <laughs> oh question yeah. actually about the ice warriors what the fuck are they actually going to be called the only reason that they're called ice warriors is that literally if they found a warrior in a, in a block of ice this is something I'm interested to see going forward yeah yeah I don't yeah. know <laughs> letters on a postcard 
Sorry, answers on a postcard. God damn it. Which, well, your answers are comprised of letters. Because <laughs> I don't read binary, so, you know, fuck off. So we've gone through our summary, our trivia spot, our character discussion. We added in extra sections that we may use going forward. Mm-hmm. We discussed why the fuck are we even discussing this person? <laughs> yeah. And now we're on to our overall. So Paddington, I'm going to hand it to you. What were your overall thoughts on this story and your score out of five? Oh, Brian Hales, you've been talking to Kit Peddler, haven't you? <laughs> Base a story in a confined research area in an isolated place with an alien menace and I am yours for four episodes, for six episodes, however long it takes. The cast, so the regular cast here, again, rock solid performances. I would definitely say a standout from Troughton because mm-hmm. he does such a good job. Um, the support, the supporting cast, especially the two Peters, uh, Salas and... Let me get his last name because I want to say it. Uh, Barkworth. Bar- Barkworth uh, as uh, Penley and Clint. Fantastic. Really, really good performances from the two of them and again and the character of Clint led to a very interesting discussion uh, an introduction of another quality villain that I can't wait to see more of um, now that being said I know I said like the whole thing of like you know however long the story takes I'm yours that doesn't necessarily mean that at the end of it I'm going to agree with how long the story took so I think that this possibly overran a small bit and that's because of characters like store and to an extent Arden as well they just felt like they it almost like they were just there for a body count to get across like how evil the villain is um and unfortunately with with the fantastic supporting cast performance we didn't get a whole lot of new input from Jamie or Victoria and which is a shame on Victoria's part because she was doing so well in terms of strong performances so like I don't like to see the stop like I, I never like to see like the the dip in quality, so I'm going to label this as a three point seven five out of five. Cool. Now I go over to you. So I'm really liking the string of stories we've had so far this season, and my scores represent that. I think this yeah. is a, another like big tick mark from me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's another great story. I think again the confined nature of the story. We only have like four main sets. It works very well at creating tension within the story. Um, I love the Doctor sciencing the shit out of things. I have I've always had a weakness for that, and I mm-hmm. have a feeling I always will. Um, I loved it when Bill did it. I love it when Pat does it. Um, I completely agree with you on the cast. Mm-hmm. The cast in this are phenomenal, and like mm-hmm. if we compare it to, if we compare it to Tomb, yeah. This cast played it straight the whole time. Mm, there was definitely. no hamming it up. Whereas in Tomb, in Tomb, I think there was a lot of, like we discussed at the time, there was some hammy performances. There was one or two mm. great ones, but there was also a couple of hammy ones. There was no hammed up performances in this. It was all play it straight. This is the character. And I think that speaks to the quality of the actors that they had. Um, like I said, the Peters, Wendy, everyone like they were they were all fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I I left out um uh, Garrett like uh, Wendy. She so good. 
really yeah. really good um but they all played it completely straight which which sold it for me which i thought was brilliant um ice warriors interesting concept i think the costume and sound design could do a little bit of work you know um again like we saw with the cybermen you know i think with the daleks it's easier because they're all in- encompassed in the dalek casing whereas when you have actual people you, you kind of have to play around a bit I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with those. The negatives for me is there's not enough for Jamie and Victoria to do. Mm. Um, while they each do their own bit, like I really loved the fact that we get to see Victoria as like the science translator. <laughs> I quite liked that as a sort of like, because Jamie's kind of the strong man. Victoria has to be something. So it's quite nice for Victoria to be that function um, in terms of filling roles for the companions. They do both get sidelined for prolonged periods of time, like multiple episodes, by injury and kidnap, which is unfortunate. Um, mm. I would have liked to have seen them do more. Um, you know, I would like to have seen, you know, even if Victoria did get kidnapped, and she does try to escape, you know, uh, even Vargas says she's very brave, which she is. Um, you know, it would have been cool if, like, if the doctor went after her and Jamie was still back at the science base. And you have Jamie, like, out of his element in the science world trying to manage that, do you know, and give him mm. a bit of development in that area. I also agree with you on the characters. We had a lot of characters in the story. We didn't discuss them all in the character base because characters like Arden and Store. <sighs> Store is great because I love, I love the portrayal of the character was fantastic mm. but like more so of like why did we have Arden my question is why did we introduce Penley and the whole idea of the scavengers when we already had Arden who talked back to Clint all the time was perfectly mm. happy to run his own operation when out on the ice I almost was like did Paddy forget to mention Arden in his list? Were we meant to be talking about him? I don't know why we had to have Arden and Penley. Like, mm. have one or the other. Yeah. And Store didn't get... Like, his character was interesting, but he didn't really fit in the story. <laughs> Do you know? Like, Store is sort of like... It's like, it's like if you crossed you know, a Cyberman story in terms of like an alien menace story with the savages. Do you know? It's yeah. like, well, there's an element here that doesn't really fit. <laughs> and I don't see the point of it. If they had like pursued, you know, Thor, uh, Thor Thor's thing of like, I'll help the, the Ice Warriors and he was utilized as a pawn, then yeah, like he probably would have been a more notable, discussable character. But just as it is, like it's, I, I generally kind of have a thing where unless the characters are in it for a substantial amount of time or they make a huge contribution to it, I don't really put them into discussion. For example, Professor Parry from Tomb of Cybermen, who's, mm. or Tomb of the Cybermen, who's there for the entire time, does fuck off. Literally yeah. just bitches and moans the entire time. I think I think the reason why I have an issue with Store is like Store sort of sold the um, environmentalist message yeah. of the story, mm-hmm. which is fine you know mm-hmm. but 
we didn't ever see him actually strike him. He's always like, oh, I want to get rid of the scientists. But he never actually does anything. Like, no. he didn't try to attack them or to break their machines. or he, he didn't try to stop them in any way. And he comes across, unfortunately, as a bit stupid because the ice is just going to bury him. Like, yeah, he can't survive without them. Like, it doesn't really make sense. So, for me, I think those two bits so too many characters mm-hmm. and not enough showing of our companions for me I actually mm-hmm. gave it the same as you I gave it 3.75 I was going to give it a 4 and then I I sort of was like no I can't go that far but 3.5 seemed too low yeah they, I, I'm kind of the same it's like it's not quite the 4 bracket but it's definitely it's higher than a 3.5 yeah um, I love the way you said like you like this run of stories because apparently this season, with the exception of next week's story, has like, the running team of base under siege. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, um, I think like a really solid joint scoring there, and again, we seem to be like really back on track in terms of uh, being on the same kind of line. Which, but, like, although like you know being off, you know being off uh, line with each other, it does make for some very interesting conversations, like. Uh, Paul said about our faceless ones conversation the mm. fact that we were so far apart in our scores he thought it was a really interesting discussion to hear us uh, go on about it oh yeah definitely so we've come to the end uh, mm-hmm. I do wonder if we've reached the end of the snow saga um, I suppose we're going to find out next week <laughs> if there's going mm-hmm. to be some sun when we discuss the enemy of the world ooh mm-hmm. I like the sound of that ooh indeed <laughs> <laughs> cool guys so until next week bye bye bye